Good morning, everybody. Man, am I glad to see you. I have missed you over these last three weeks. It's good to be home, good to be back here at the Livingstones Church. Uh, I did know as I was gone, you watched the video of uh, me and Meemaw. You saw Meemaw become a star. That's like, she got an agent this week. So if we have any more conversation about future projects, she, I have to go through him now. It's kind of an odd thing that it's gone to her head so quickly. But I did want to just, in reference to just remind you, Give 2017 is on and we can use your generosity in two different ways. One is just financial. If you'd like to make a financial contribution to Give 2017, as you have always been generous in the past, I trust that you will again this year. But the second is also uh, generosity in regards to your time. So this year, we want to do just a little bit, uh, something just a little bit different, uh, and that is we want to kind of connect with different organizations and institutions here on the south side of South Bend and individuals who largely just might, over the Christmas season, be neglected, maybe forgotten. They might feel like mishaps, so to speak, which will be a series will begin next Sunday. And, uh, and so just you've been paying attention to those sorts of things. Next week, we'll begin to kind of pair, hey, so-and-so could use your time and do so as a, as a family if you'd like to, as a group if you'd like to, go with your friends. Uh, but just be watching out for more information Give 2017. And I just want to say thank you in advance for uh, your generosity in that. Uh, as I think about, you know, just what happens is in my mind, I just begin to imagine uh, the possibilities in the kingdom of God here on the south side of South Bend and our community neighborhood through this, through our church doing this. It just seems like a, a, a big thing to me. The, the, the possibility for major impact uh, is with this. And so I'm just grateful for that. This, God, we planned this a year ago. Like This idea came a year ago, and I know that uh, we'll rise to the, to the challenge in it. And the second thing, just to be aware of, um, when you walk in here next Sunday, it will look completely different. Like it will be, you'll walk and go, man, it's beautiful. Like there'll be lights, and like we, we decorate, we go all out for Christmas uh, season, and that decoration is on Saturday morning. If you've got time that you have available, you'd like to donate, that would be great too, just Saturday morning to help with the interior decorations that are going on. Now, as I wrap out this series here, um, a mess worth making, let me begin by just kind of giving two big thank yous. Um, one is just to the staff here at the Living Stones Church, to Janae and to Angie and to Meredith and to Isaac and to Jen, who are really amazing. And they are hardworking, and they are fully, and I learned this by being gone for three weeks, like fully capable of leading the daily affairs of this church well all on their own. And one of the unique things about being on a cruise, which is where I've been uh, for a couple weeks, is you're in the middle of the ocean, so there's no contact. Like, they can't send me a text or a message or anything like that, and so they kind of, they make all those decisions and they move forward. And um, I can't think of a better group, more capable of doing just that than the staff here, and I mean it sincerely. Um, I came back to discover I am completely unnecessary, <laughs> uh, and there's some joy I take even in that. So I just want to say thank you to them. Um, yeah. But second, I came back and I listened to the podcast over the last three weeks, and so Lowell preached the first week, and then Marty came in and spoke the second week, and then Ryan last week, and they were amazing. Like, they did such a fantastic job, and so I want to say a huge thank you to Lowell and to Marty and to Ryan uh, for, for the messages they delivered, I mean, on point. I mean, they were, really, they were great, and even the feedback I've received from everybody, uh, how much it blessed you and was an encouragement to you, so I, I'm grateful for that. But I need to be honest with you. My intention uh, was to not preach this morning. Now, I knew in terms of my schedule, I was going to be here, but I wanted to line up another guest speaker, kind of a fourth one to kind of wrap out this series and, and be able to speak this morning. I wasn't able to find one, uh, but the reason why I was wanting another guest speaker is because of the topic. <laughs> like, we're talking about relationships and intimacy, and listen, there are a lot of topics you could give me that I could go... Oh, yeah, I think I could do that. Like, just give me a bit of time of preparation. I think I'd come up with something to say that will be uh, worth hearing in the end. Uh, but 
when it comes to intimacy, I mean, even after 25 years of marriage under my belt, 21 years of parenting under my belt, I've got 46 years of friendships I've tried to navigate, I still feel like I'm just a beginner in this area, just kind of a, a novice. And so what I keep hearing in my head is that Kendrick Lamar song, To Sit Down and Be Humble. That's kind of what I keep going. My... I, I once had a counselor, uh, and I've had several of them because I'm me, <laughs> once looked me right in the eyes and he said, he said, he goes, you are the second most guarded person I have ever met. And I thought to myself, well, all right, I almost won. Like, is there a trophy for second place? Like, until I realized, I don't think he meant that as a compliment. And then just in our time together, I was kind of sharing my life story and even the reason why I was there, some things I was struggling with, this sort of thing. He began to talk about how I live my life out of an orphan mindset, is what he said, in regards to relationships. Not that I am an orphan, I have two parents who happen to be sitting on the front row here, and they're wonderful parents who loved me and cared for me, but at least in my relationships, he was trying to talk about how I, I kind of act like I'm an orphan. So I didn't know what to do with that, so I just sang for him my best rendition of It's a Hard Knock Life from us, from Annie, and paid him $120 and that was it. So, and some of it just comes from my natural uh, personality and disposition, like just kind of how God wired me together. And others that I'm sure kind of come back from the pain or trauma of life events. And I can even go way back into my childhood development to recognize, I think this probably had an effect on me even when I'm 46 years old young. Uh, when I was entering the first grade here at Monroe, I went to Monroe School just down the street. And when I was entering the first grade, uh, my mom's sister, Sharon, my aunt, was shot in the head twice and murdered. And her body was thrown into a river in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Now, Sharon's son, Jason, was my favorite cousin, so we hung out all, together, uh, all the time. And they found her body 10 days later, and it was my dad who actually went with her husband to identify the body, but her husband couldn't look, as you would imagine, and my dad was actually the one here who had to view the body and confirm it was, in fact, my Aunt Sharon. And I remember at the time, my parents trying to shield me from the trauma of all the events that were kind of unfolding, but I was still very much aware that there was trauma that was unfolding. And little five or six-year-old Sam didn't quite know how to process the trauma. And so I developed a cognitive form of OCD that internalized itself, and I became obsessed with something happening to my parents, like what happened to my aunt. Like, I just couldn't shake those thoughts. And so I even remember in the first grade, I had Mrs. Fishburne was her name, my teacher, and she had her own kind of tragic ending story. Uh, but every day, Mrs. Fishburne allowed me to go to the office to call my home so that I could make sure my mom was still there. Now, what I didn't know was happening at the time is my mom and Mrs. Fishburne had to coordinate when my mom was going to be there. Otherwise, who knows what little Sam would have done. Had, <laughs> oh, my God. It was, it was bad. And so what happens just finally, after a year's time, those more dramatic and acute effects just kind of dissipated, and they went away. But I've recognized in my life, oh, there's probably, you know, there's stuff that happens that sometimes you get guarded in, right? You want to protect your own heart. Just even being in ministry, and I'm not unique to it. I mean, it's just kind of what happens. But even being in ministry, you invest in relationships, which means sometimes you walk with long periods of time with people. Like you do weddings, you marry people, and you baptize, and you sit for hours when somebody's having a surgery and pray that healing comes or walk through funerals, major life events. And just moments that feel like we're doing life together, kind of genuine friends, only in the end to see they leave without even a goodbye because they were upset about some issue they disagreed with in the church or something along those lines. And you have enough of that over time, you tend just to get a little guarded. 
your first instinctive response might be to assume everyone in your life is going to leave you. So you protect your heart now for their departure so that it won't hurt so bad. That's what orphans do. Now, there's some people that you meet, and within five minutes, I mean, they've just opened up their whole life story, and they're just pouring themselves out in terms of the depths of their thoughts and their emotions and their life experiences. And when I'm the recipient of that, I love it. Like, it's just, like that's a highlight in ministry for me is when I get to hear somebody else's story, and they're telling me all about their life story and their journey and their experiences and their thoughts. And listen, nothing surprises me. So even if they go to the dark secrets, like, I'm not thrown off by that at all. In fact, in the end, it's like... It makes me love you even more. Just like I, can, I feel that sense of, oh, this is the God-loved, broken, yet cherished vessel there. But if you turn and say, okay, your turn, I'll go, well, I'm right-handed. I like cheese. And I could just camp out there for an hour and a half without any real problem at all. Because here's what I know uh, is true, is I, I could get up and speak confidently and act like I got my crap all together and I can share spiritual truths or walk through difficult life situations with you, but if I'm being honest, like in my more honest moments, I know myself well enough, like who I am and at times what I think, and not like just a thought that pops into my head, like what I think and even what I've done or what I struggle with. That it's hard not to think, man, if any of you knew that, you'd be sitting here right now thinking, what the hell is this guy for? <laughs> like, you'd leave too. That's the thinking of an orphan, and I struggle with it. So when it comes to the topic of intimacy, my plan was just to sit this one out and let people much more qualified and experts deal with the topic. And I knew as a church we needed to talk about relationships in light of our walk with Jesus. Uh, this was planned last November, a year ago. And the intention all along was me to take advantage of being on vacation and by necessity just letting other people do the talking. But I'm back. I couldn't find a guest speaker. (laughs) I suck at this topic. But I'm hoping and trusting that in spite of all that, by the end you'll hear a word from the Lord in regards to how to live a life in healthy relationship and intimacy. Now when you think about intimacy, by definition, you know you can't be intimate with everyone. Like, you can't even remember a whole bunch of people's names. Like, there's just a finite number of names you'll even be able to remember, let alone anything that would qualify as real intimacy. But in it, I'd give us permission to know, well, you aren't supposed to be intimate with everyone. You will interact with countless numbers of people, just even today, in a drive through line, at the grocery store, in a restaurant, maybe you'll go to the gym, maybe in your neighborhood, and you can't be intimate with everyone you encounter today. In fact, you'll get arrested if you do. (laughs) Officer, this man keeps trying to hug me. I don't know him. (laughs) You're not supposed to. (laughs) What I learned on a cruise ship uh, over two weeks, we were on a cruise ship for two two weeks, it was our 25th wedding anniversary, is you get a real quick picture of people that you're with but you're not really intimate with because when you're on a cruise ship, like you could do and be stupid and do stupid things. And even though you're around thousands of other people, what's going through your mind the whole time is, is this. Like, like, I look at other people that you're on the boat with, you're like, what I know in my head is, I will never see you people ever again in my life. Which gives you permission to act in a different way than, like, no, like we're really intimate, and like we know one another. And I know this to be true because of the number of older men wearing Speedos that I saw, <laughs> that I assumed they too thought to themselves, well, I'm never going to see anyone else again, and, and I'm glad I will never see them again as far as I'm concerned. If you never see the person behind the deli counter again 
at the grocery store, there's a good chance you wouldn't even realize it. And even if you did, there's a good chance you wouldn't really care. It just doesn't really affect you that much. But if your best friend walks out of your life, you will feel that. Or if your daughter walks out of your life and you don't hear from her for years, you will feel that. That's what intimacy does. Intimacy is not to be shared with everyone. There's just a finite number of people that you could be intimate with, both even at once and even in the totality of your lifetime. And there are lots of definitions we could probably give for intimacy, all of which would sound very Webster-like. And, but just let me functionally define intimacy. If I might, let me, let me start with the negative, because me. <laughs> Being intimate with someone means that they can destroy you if they want, or at least inflict incredible damage and destruction in your life. And the reason why is because through intimacy, they know the real you. Like they know your thoughts, including the darker ones. They know what you're really like, even in different contexts. Like when other people might not be looking, they know what you're really like when you're angry or depressed or hangry, which happens, eat the Snickers bar. They know your secrets. And secrets are the currency of intimacy. And those who you are really intimate with, at least to some degree, know your secrets. Now, Larry, who's five cuckles down from you in the office, he might know some things about you, but he probably doesn't really know your secrets. Your intimate relationships are your secret keepers. And this is why when you talk about intimacy and relationships, you have to talk about marriage because we understand typically in that context, we recognize the other person in this relationship, your spouse, is holding your secrets. I mean, you could come to church and put on whatever face you want, but your wife knows what you're really like. You could come to church and posture in whatever manner you want, but your wife knows what you said. And you could come to church and position yourself in whatever mask you find convenient for you in this morning but your wife has most likely seen you unmasked, and thus she's holding your secrets. And if she wants to, she could destroy you, or at least inflict incredible damage and destruction in your life. She knows most likely the real you, or at least a more vulnerable and real you that anyone else gets to see on a regular basis. And you can't talk about intimacy and relationships without acknowledging that your children know you, like they've been watching you for... 18 years, some even longer, and they know the disconnect between the private you and the public you. They have seen what you said is your greatest priority, but they know what you've actually lived out. And this is why there's jokes about pastor's kids, right? Pastor's kids kind of have that uh, notorious reputation for struggling, and why do they struggle? Like, my three kids have to figure out the Sam that they listen to every week preach and do this and reconcile that with the dad that they have at home, which is perfect, by the way. I just want you to know. <laughs> this is where you're supposed to laugh, Isaac. <laughs> they are little secret keepers. And sometimes that can be traumatizing in a way that they need a good therapist so that they can no longer bear the weight of being that secret keeper because unlike other relationships they will have, they didn't choose this one. They got stuck with this one. So go ahead and save for your kid's college fund if you'd like to, but I would recommend before you get to that, you should have like a therapy fund for all of your kids because they'll most likely need it. 
Your best friends know things about you that no one else knows. That's why they're your best friends. You've shared with them your secrets. They know things no one else does. And sometimes even your best friend knows things you haven't even shared with your spouse. Secrets are the currency of intimacy. I think people intuitively know this. There's a website I follow every week. I go to it, postsecret.com. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It was started years ago by a guy named Frank Warren, who was just doing a project where he invited people to send him anonymously on a postcard their secret. And it immediately took off, and he was overwhelmed by the number of postcards that he was receiving in the mail. I mean, postcards, but secrets about everything, what they thought, what they did, something that traumatized them in life, something that just, even goofy things in the office, sometimes they're sexual in nature. I mean, just, they're secrets. And, it, and to this date, he has almost 800 million visits to his website. And it's the largest uh, ad-free, non-commercial website on the internet, postsecret. Com. And so what he does is he collects just a handful of those postcards, and every weekend, usually on a Saturday or a Sunday, he posts this week's uh, secrets. And it went on to, uh, he's published books, and he's gone on a speaking tour of just dealing with the power of secrets in relationships and intimacy. That somehow, deep down, we get that the secret keepers in your life are the ones that you're intimate with, and if they wanted to, they could destroy you or inflict real damage to your life. But if I might state it positively, intimacy also means that they know the real you. They know, they know what you're like, like the truest form of yourself. They're aware of your hopes and your dreams and your failings and your insecurities and the harder aspects of your personality, like the real you. And they think you're still beautiful. And they accept you and receive you for exactly who you are. And it's their honor and privilege not only to know your secrets, but to keep them as well. And when you can find that, when you find that in a spouse, not the one who's trying to change you into something you simply aren't, but receive you as the real you, which doesn't mean that you shouldn't be improving yourself, but as you are, the real you, they say, yes, that's wow. And when you have a friend that knows all of the bright places in your life, but also the dark spaces of your life. When they know, oh no, I know about the occasional depressive states. And when they know about your struggles, and in friendship they can still say yes to that. Intimacy is that space where we see the mess, and we sit in it together because I can't bear for you to be in it alone. Intimacy is that space where we get to be our real selves, our truest selves, and be loved still. That is why it is a mess worth making. But I recognize each of us kind of has a different level of capacity for it. And there's lots of factors that go into your capacity level for intimacy. One is just your natural personality and disposition. Some of you, and this is no right or wrong, that's just kind of how God put you together, how He knit you together. Some of you are like, you are outgoing and you, just have, you have a lot of friends kind of person. You know people like, like you're my best friend, you're my best friend, you're like... Like, if you were to get married and had all your bridesmaids, there'd be like dozens of them. You'd be like, that's how many you have. <laughs> Others of you, on the other hand, just because of your natural personality and disposition, like, all you really need, you just need two great lifelong friends, and you'll be just fine. That's all you need. And quite frankly, sometimes all you want. It's like a Lego pieces, right? Some of you, some of you are like the eight-pegged Legos, and others of you are like the two. And more than your natural personality and disposition, and it's difficult and at times chaotic. Um, yeah. 
Number two, this, your level and experience of past pain, trauma, and wounds in an arena of relationships. That'll affect your capacities of intimacy. Your level of experience of past pain, trauma, and wounds in the arena of relationships. And often you have no choice in this. But you do know, if you keep getting abused in your romantic relationships, you will eventually adjust your thinking because of it and move away from intimacy, like real intimacy. You keep being betrayed at the hands of your best friends, you'll think twice about opening yourself up to yet another friend. And sometimes it's from even things that happened in your childhood, maybe some loss you dealt with, maybe a father abandoning you, or maybe you have an overly protective mother. Sometimes it could even be just an offhanded comment that just cut to the very core of your identity that led you to believe you weren't worthy of an intimate relationship, or at least a healthy one. And I have bad news for everyone in this room. If you haven't yet, you will walk through this. And the reason why is because everyone around you, including yourself, is a sinner. Marriage is ultimately one sinner marrying another sinner. Thus, you know what you have in marriage? Two sinners. Kids, guess what? Your parents are sinners. And parents, guess what your kids are? Sinners, can I get an amen? <laughs> Most obvious doctrine I'll talk about this morning. That best friend of yours, sinner. I know that's why we get along so great. I know, but eventually that sin is going to affect you. You will not escape this life without experiencing the pain, trauma, and wounds of intimacy in relationships. And if you don't seek healing from those wounds in the form of prayer or counseling or conversation or in an intentional path of forgiveness and maybe even reconciliation, but not always reconciliation, you'll find yourself a very lonely person in life. You might be related to somebody like this or know somebody like this where it just in the end, they're just that old, cranky, lonely, bitter, angry, yelling at, get off my lawn at the kids. Jesus is not calling you to that. Those wounds require a path of healing and forgiveness. And really, anytime we are wounded, you only have one of two choices. You either choose a path of forgiveness or you will choose one of bitterness with all of its accompanying companions, cynicism, contempt, anger. The third thing, though, is just kind of what's been modeled to you in the levels of intimacy. Some of you grew up in a family that, I mean, your family is like affectionate and loving and giving each other hugs and openly expressing I mean, just like a big Italian, give me a kiss, like your great aunt Ruth kissed you all the time and she had a beard and it felt weird. <laughs> Others of you, not so much. The family you grew up in was kind of cold. And where did your parents learn that? Probably from their parents. Like it was just several years ago, uh, probably within the last decade, my mom's dad, my grandfather, told her that he loved her for the very first time, for the first time in her entire life. And it was on a phone call, like even offhanded. They were about to hang up on the phone. And at the end, my grandpa said to my mom, I love you. For the first time. Could you imagine being in your late 50s, early 60s, and hearing for the very first time? Now, he loved her, but for him, you, just, you showed that by taking care of the family. You just didn't say those things. And he finally said it. And like, you're crying right now. Like, she could just cry and just, just <laughs> thinking about hearing for the very first time that and, and like, I think about my grandfather, and I, like, I know what I know about my great-grandparents is they were kind of cold, hard, non-affectionate people. He just kind of got that. He got, that was what was modeled to him, and, and that's what was, right? And so that's why 
You watch me and my mom hug, it's... <laughs> and that's why it's important, you know, to find people who can model healthy, intimate relationships. Important for the church to be able to define and exemplify what a healthy friendship does look like, or a marriage, or a family. But when I start examining my orphan self, I have to realize I, like Jesus walked through the same sorts of things. Like Jesus, in the flesh, here on earth, had to figure out healthy, intimate relationships. And we tend to put Jesus on this divine pedestal, and I'm not denying His divinity, but I also want to affirm this morning, especially when it comes to intimacy and relationships, He had to figure that out. Like He had to figure out how He's going to live a life on this earth, engaged in relationships and intimacy in a way that was healthy. And so what we know is from the writer of Hebrews will remind us, listen, we know that he's God, but he also lived as a human and went through the same things that you... Like Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 15 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Or if you just flip over to chapter 5, verse 8, the writer of Hebrews will say, Son, though he was, he actually had to learn obedience from what he suffered. You don't think Jesus knew what it was like to be made fun of by his friends? Especially given the story of his birth and the questionable legitimacy that was circling around the circumstances of his conception. You don't think he ever heard the taunt of someone who was trying to bully him? Or we tend to think Jesus was always the team captain, but I'm telling you, I bet at Nazareth Junior High School... He might not have always been picked first. I don't think Jesus got to skip out on puberty and all the awkwardness that came with that. And most scholars believe that Jesus lost his father to death probably at a probably pretty early age. You don't think he ever had to walk through that kind of grief and potential abandonment issues? You don't think that Jesus had to figure out how to relate to those who were around him. And listen, this is the key. I mean, sometimes I know we feel skittish thinking about it, like, but Jesus was a man. Like, just like he's got my parts, he's got hormones like me. He was not some mystical figure that escaped that. And he surely knew that a touch from Peter felt different than a touch from his friend Mary. And he had to figure out how to relate to both, especially in light of his unique calling. And so what we see in the Gospels is Jesus trying to work out these relationships and know who he could open himself up to and be intimate with and those he could not. And sometimes we think in that we think to ourselves, oh, Jesus, he loved everybody. And then he walked around just hugging everybody and letting them in the intimate aspects of his life. What is it? No, no, he didn't. Jesus actually had a circle of trust and not everyone was in it. You ever see the movie Meet the Fockers? And I want to enunciate that clearly. There's this storyline, the ongoing storyline of the circle of trust. You've seen the movies where uh, the character Greg starts dating Pam, and Pam's dad, Jack, continually harasses Greg about being the kind of guy, if he's going to marry his daughter, Pam, and be in the family, he has to be trusted. He has to be in the circle of trust. So here's a montage of clips from the circle of trust from Meet the Fockers. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the Burns family circle of trust. See, if I can't trust you, Greg, then I have no choice but to put you right back outside the circle. And once you're out, you're out. There's no coming back. Mm. Well, I would 
definitely like to stay inside the circle. You have my word. I'm gonna hold you to that. Circle of trust. Guess who's back in the circle of trust? I like to think of it as a little circle of trust. That circle of trust thing, that's mine. That is true. I mean, I am still in the Burns family circle of trust, right? You're firmly in the circle. Finally. <laughs> Let me put it very simply. If your family circle does indeed join my family circle, they'll form a chain. I can't have a chink in my chain. Hmm. Yeah, okay. I get the metaphor. Greg, you're still in the circle of trust, so I'm going to give you one more chance. That's it. We're starting our own circle of trust. And guess what? You're not in it. Well, you can't start a circle of trust. It's my circle. You know what? You don't have a patent on the circle, Jack. And by the way, you're not even in your own circle right now. That is untrue. I say who's in or out of the circle. Well, I'm confused. Whose circle am I in? Nobody's. Nobody's. Who's in your circle of trust? I was like, choose wisely. Like, Jesus chooses wisely. Like, there's this passage, it's kind of offhanded, but if you listen to it, you'll see what's happening here. It's in John chapter 2. It comes right after the scene where Jesus walks into the temple in Jerusalem and he's overturning tables and creates such a commotion. Everybody's asking questions about him. And it'll say in verse 23, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. So you get this, right? They're not hostile. Like they saw what he, the miracles and the signs and they believed. Look at verse 24. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Some of your translations say, for he knew what was in a man. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. What we see here is Jesus knows what people are capable of. Because of that, he doesn't entrust himself just to everyone. He could see all of the crowds. And he knows the crowds are fickle. He can be like, yeah, you're yelling Hosanna today. Like, ooh, praise the Lord, Hosanna. But like just a couple hours from now, you'll be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And so he doesn't entrust himself in that. He knows not everyone is in his circle of trust. And this is where some of the drama in your life is coming from. You have people in your circle of trust who are not supposed to be there. Or you're living your life exposing the intimate details to people who are not for you. And I see it all the time. We call it Facebook. Some of you don't know this because you think everyone on your Facebook friends list is your real friend, and they are not. And you're posting things that should be reserved for those you are intimate with, not to the 264 people on your friends list. You can't be intimate with 664 people. You can't even be friends in the de truest definition of the word with 764 people. And some of those 764 people, they aren't your friend. They're only keeping you on their friends list so they can tell your ex-girlfriend everything you're up to now. Quit opening yourself up to people who are not your people. Jesus, the Son of God, knows He cannot just trust everyone because He knows what humans are capable of. He knows what's in a man. But He was relationally connected, and He had intimate relationships. 
They even transcended his band of disciples. We can read in the Gospels about his relationship with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who he considered great friends, or his relationship with Mary Magdalene. But even with the twelve, he had the twelve, and they were perhaps some of the most intimate relationships that he shared. But even within the twelve, he had three. You can just see over and over again in the Gospels that Jesus would take uh, Peter, and, or Peter, James, and John with him in situations and experiences that the others didn't get to go to. And I can't, I always wonder, like, how did Thaddeus feel? Like, oh man, I got left out again. Like, how did that, like, but even within those three, most think that Jesus had a best friend in John. This is his circle of trust. And listen, even with Jesus in his circle of trust, he didn't even bat a thousand, did he? Because who else was in that circle? Judas Iscariot was in that circle, which means, like you, Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by someone close to him, and it literally destroyed his life. So don't hear me say in this message, you just need to be open, vulnerable, and exposed to everyone. No, you don't. That won't end well for you. But there should be some that you are. That is your circle. Those are your people. And while it will be messy, it will be a mess worth making. I don't know, has anyone ever seen the show? It's on the Discovery Channel. You're like, oh, I'm a church of cannabis. Have anyone seen the, the show Naked and Afraid? Have anyone ever seen that show? All right, if you're embarrassed to admit it. Like, it's a great title for my honeymoon is what I'm thinking is what it is. Come on, that's funny, right? <laughs> you're like, 9.30 thought I was hilarious. So I don't know what they... About two complete strangers, typically one guy and one girl, who are paired up, they're stripped down naked, given just a few tools of survival, and then forced to live off the land working as a team and surviving for 21 days. It's crazy. And because of the reality show, I don't know how much of it is staged. But when I contemplate about this idea of being naked and afraid, I recognize the biblical picture for us is a life that is naked and unafraid. That's supposed to be our show. And since Lowell, the first week, I don't know if you remember, talked about fighting naked, you remember that? Like... Man, what a great strategy. I never thought about that. Like, whoo <laughs> Distraction. <laughs> Let's go back to this idea of being naked for a moment uh, from Genesis. This is what it says in Genesis 2, verse 23 to 25. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then the next verse is the verse that everyone puts on their wedding invitations. You get this in the mail, the wedding invitation. Verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. But I think the next verse should be the verse that's on everybody's wedding invitations. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. (laughs) It is this last verse that is fascinating to me because it is the key to intimate relationships. Now, when we read this, we picture Adam and Eve running around in their birthday suits. Like, that's the point that they're, oh, they don't have clothes on. But from a Hebraic Jewish perspective, that's not the point of the story. They're not trying to, it's not trying to just describe whether they had clothes on or not. What it's trying to describe is the qualitative nature of their relationship. And what the story notes is they were completely naked and they didn't have a hint of shame in it. And what the story is trying to communicate is the ideal relationships. This is what it looks like before sin enters the picture. Now, there'll be a moment where they're trying to cover themselves, they're blaming each other, but for now, they are completely naked, and they don't have a hint of shame in it. Adam and Eve are totally exposed to one another, totally open, totally vulnerable, 
totally real. And they have no fear in that. There's no sin, there's no posturing, there's no protecting oneself, only the free and open nature of a relationship to be openly honest and vulnerable and know you will be received. And nakedness has a way of making us vulnerable, but it's also a metaphor for being transparent and real and finding the kind of relationships that allow such exposure and in return, finding love and safety and acceptance and genuine grace. A space where I could be me, and I don't need to feel shame in that. This verse is the verse of intimacy. I can be my real self with you. I could tell you my hopes and my dreams and my fears and my victories and my failures. You know my dark places and also my strengths. And I trust you with my secrets. And you love me still. Finding that can be messy. Trust me, I'm the second most guarded person you'll ever know. But I'm convinced that this is the best kind of life to live on the earth, surrounded by the people who allow you to be naked and feel no shame. That is your circle of trust. Find it. And when you're in that space, consider it sacred and reciprocate by being another intimate partner, whether it's in the context of marriage or parenting or friendship, where you receive them with sincere acceptance and love, and grace. And I believe this is the heart longing of everyone, including that old cranky guy on the front lawn yelling at the kids. And I think the vision of Jesus for the earth is a community that exists that allows such openness and vulnerability. And here's where I think places like Celebrate Recovery and AA have a leg up on the church. I think the church could, could learn a valuable lesson from both of what it looks like to be a place where someone can show up and say, hi, my name is Sam, and I don't have all my crap together, and can hear back, welcome to the club, Sam. We don't either. But I think Jesus' vision for the earth is a community of faith that is known for its radical love, its radical grace, and its radical acceptance, a space where we get to experience intimacy with God, healing from Jesus, and then the ability to extend that intimacy and grace to one another, a space that allows me to tell my story about my real self and to hear, well, hello, orphan, you have a home here. At the same time, you have a responsibility to receive the vulnerability, the openness, the brokenness, and the secrets of others, and to hold them in trust, to say, you're safe here with me. I will uphold and protect this intimacy. And every week we do something that was once considered a very intimate act. They called it a table fellowship was the official words that were used 2,000 years ago. It isn't as much of a big deal in our day and age as it was in a Jewish culture in the first century. Because if you're a good Jew in the first century, you didn't just share your table with anyone. To have table fellowship was to extend a radical hospitality that expressed approval and acceptance. And if you'll remember, in the Gospels, Jesus is always getting in trouble because of his table fellowship. The Jewish leaders and the Pharisees are always criticizing Jesus because he shares table fellowship with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. They'll say things like, if he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of people he's eating with. They would pull a disciple to the side and say, 
doesn't your master realize what kind of a woman she is? It was a form of intimacy, a place of radical acceptance, and Jesus offered it to people like us. He knows all of the good and the bad and the ugly. He knows our joys, our dreams, our hopes, our fears, our failures, our dark secrets. Yes, Jesus even knows your darkest secret. And he still says, come, let's eat together. And this is the great leveler before us. Not one of us gets to have table fellowship with Jesus because we deserve it or because we've earned it. Not one. We all made it because Jesus invited us to a table into, so to speak, his circle of trust. And he's calling us in this moment of communion to not only experience intimacy with him as we remember through the bread and the cup his grace and his love and his acceptance of us, but also to extend that to others at this table as an expression of acceptance, grace, and love. So in a moment, I'm going to pray, and you'll be invited if you want to, nobody's forced to, to come to the front just and here at Livingstone, it gets a little chaotic. Like I go to other churches like so formal and like just how do you do that? Like here we're like bumping into one another, those sort of things. Like what it says, don't waste this moment in some weird introspective exercise between you and God. It was never intended to be that. It was intended to be a place of table fellowship, of radical acceptance and approval, where we get to say, I'm screwed up and got invited still, and the person next to you can say, Me too. And this might only happen in external symbolism by the shaking of someone's hand or the giving and receiving of a hug or maybe a pat on the back or a high five. I don't care what it looks like. What I would just say this morning is don't waste the moment. Even if this is your first time and you don't know anybody, just stick your hand out and shake somebody's hand. If you see somebody that you don't know, just shake their hand. Don't hesitate. You don't even have to say anything. Just let the act itself be a wink and a nod that we know how we both got to this table by Jesus' radical love in the midst of our broken places. And so you're invited to intimacy with God and with one another as we confess He's invited us into a circle of trust and to this table. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks that you loved us even when for us it felt like we were unlovable. And you extended to us your mercy and your grace and salvation we know we don't deserve it, and now we're going to gather as a community, and we'd like to be a community that reflects your heart. And we want to share not only with you that intimacy, but with one another that we accept, that we love, and we extend grace to one another, for we all know we do not have our stuff together. And we got here because of your mercy.